Hello, my friends. Today we are talking to Ron, the VP of Engineering at Jobvite, and we discuss the importance of building a network before you need it, making the transition from doing things to motivating others, and at what point an organization should think about hiring a chief architect. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. How are you doing, Joel? I'm good. I'm actually super excited to talk with you. I'm, I saw like in the past in college, I think it was, you got a degree in aeronautics and astronomics. Is that true? Uh, yeah, uh, that was actually my first part of my career was uh, working on the space shuttle program with Rockwell. Uh, so it, I had two great loves growing up as, you know, uh, as a child of the 60s is, you know, watching the moon landing and then seeing the advent of computing. And I wanted to pursue both of those. And I found a way to do that. Right. I got my aerospace degree, worked on the space shuttle program, did a lot of uh, uh, programming to support the design analysis. And then ultimately just pivoted back into commercial software during the during the 90s and, and you know, caught the wave on the startups during the boom. And, you know, it's just been one startup after another uh, since then. Oh, that's amazing. That sounds like a lot of fun. Like, wh- why did you decide to go back into or to leave like the space area? <laughs> was it because of that during that time when NASA wasn't doing a whole lot before SpaceX and Musk came on the scene and they were like, let's own this? Well, yeah, ultimately, that was the a, a big part of it. Yeah. Uh, during 1995, I was part of the commercial space transportation study that was uh, across the industry, a group of thought leaders that came together and said, what do we need to do to commercialize space? And we, we developed a lot of um, necessary technologies that would enable that. And it was pretty clear right away that you know, those technologies are 20 years out. So we're not going to do any of this now. So why don't I go do something different? You know, and, and it's been really exciting and rewarding to see, you know, everything that the, the new business-led companies can do when you're not constrained by, you know, government funding. Oh, yeah. I'm excited. We're having another person on, uh, I think, next week called Firefly. And the guy had worked at like SpaceX and worked at Jeff Bezos' company, Blue Origin. It seems like yeah. if you look at their all their LinkedIn's, they go from one to the other to the other. And I'm like, recruiters are just making a lot of money. <laughs> well, yeah, it, in a lot of ways, it's the same same group of people. It's such a small, night, uh, close-knit community. You know, people are going where the work is exciting, uh, you know, and, and certainly, uh, you know, looking forward to seeing, you know, what what transpires with the Starship program as well now. Are you seeing, I mean, you, you work at a company, Jobvite, and I'm assuming you guys do something with like applicant tracking and jobs and things like that. But are you, do you get data on like different trends, different industries that are moving? Do you guys look at that type of stuff? Oh, of course we do. In fact, SpaceX is one of our customers. Uh, and, and, and so what we do is uh, we build schools and services that allow our customers to seek out, you know, engage with get people to apply and qualify and hire candidates so that they can build great teams. And, you know, this year's obviously been a very challenging year for a lot of companies on the hiring front. It's been interesting to see which companies are still hiring aggressively, you know, logistics and transportation, uh, you know, gig economy companies are still hiring really hot. You know, companies that are not, you know, restaurants, bars, uh, you know, retail, exactly what you'd see. But, you know, coming out of the summer, we saw that start to pivot and turn, you know, and and coming into September, it's like, all right, we're right back at where we were in in February. And now, again, you know, we're hit with all of the more restrictive lockdown uh, decrees uh, to control the ICU capacity. Uh, And so we can imagine it's going to, you know, take another uh, undulation. Uh, before it starts on the road to a permanent recovery. But there's a lot of excitement in the industry about getting back to work. It, oh, it's yeah. been interesting to see how much new volume we've been getting as soon as it started to look like it was going to recover. People were on the hiring um, fast. So and I'm curious, where are you located like physically? 
Um, I'm physically in the Bay Area. Uh, okay. uh, we have a facility in San Mateo, but uh, you know, Jobbyte is a global company, uh, and we're all working remotely now. Uh, we we still have a few, you know physical facilities that we use for postal drops and stuff but you know generally generally uh everybody's working out of their home and uh it's been an interesting journey i think trying to understand what works what doesn't work and what do we need to do more of to compensate for that lack of physical presence yeah because you mentioned a minute ago you said that like with the restrictions coming back on and where i am the restrictions have haven't really changed yeah, this is a California thing. Oh, yeah. okay. Got it. So they're being more restrictive right now. What what's the just it's December. It's like the first couple of weeks of December right now and they're being more restrictive than they were like 2 or 3 months ago. We we we've gone backwards. Uh so where we were located, you know, we were coming out of a more restrictive tier into a a, a less restrictive tier. California has a four-tier system and we were moving forward, which was great. And the problem was, I think people just kind of overdid it. And now that, you know, so it caused a spike in, in occurrences. And now they're taking a step backward, but they didn't step backward one step. They stepped backward two steps. Oh, wow. Um, and so now, yeah. So now it's, it's kind of back where we were almost in April. Uh, so it's not, you know, we didn't back up to July. We backed up to April and hopefully we'll only need to stay like this until the 4th of January, but you know, it, it kind of puts a damper on the momentum that we had coming out of September. That's great. I don't watch the news. So this is like news for me right now. You are my like weather person or, or the coronavirus weather. Like I'm there you go. right now. I had no idea that all, so all my friends out in California, they're like locked down again right now. Wow. Things are definitely wild west down here. It's amazing to see how the different states handle things differently. It reminds me that like when we hear about other countries and other parts of the world, if you look on a map, like we are like a bunch of little countries, right? As far well, as Well, that land. is the United States, right? Yeah. Is the the states are are, you know, sovereign. Uh, you know, the federal coalition is the union and and this is why states rights are so important is it should be up to local people to decide how they want to govern themselves right both that you know but at, at a larger you know there there is a role for federalism as well as say yeah this would be good idea for everybody to do because we're all in this together and because our borders are incredibly fluid between the states what happens in one state affects what happens in another state so it, i think there's a balanced measure here but you know, it, it's pretty clear that, you know, there is some benefit to wearing masks and generally people should do it, not necessarily because it protects them, but it protects the people around them. Uh, what I like is that, um, or the reason why I don't watch the media is they make it seem like everybody's so angry. And then when everybody I talk to is like completely reasonable, it's like, yeah, we're all American. We love the core values of America. And so I'm on the team of like, I think right now, as far as if people like a civilization goes and we'll get right back to the technology stuff. <laughs> but like, I just think like the unity right now is, is the phase we need to be in. Like we need to come together and figure out like how much, what do we have in common and how can we just like. Yeah. But Kumbaya doesn't sell, right? It, you know, the media companies generally are targeting toward the outrage cycle, right? They need the clicks. They need the ad generation, right? So you have to look at how the product is packaged to understand how it's going to be consumed. It's not in their interest to say, hey, everything's fine except for these wackos on the extremes. But I, I kind of, I mean, I, I disagree a little bit with that because the thing that makes this, this media outlet successful is just being useful to other people. Right. So there, there is another model. I mean, but there is another model their old models and that's yeah. the problem. They had to transition old models. Yeah. Yeah, and, and you're right, right? Is you you've got things like modern CTO and the TED Talk tracks that are right. you know generally informative and trying to improve the situation for humanity, but you also have these uh, you know other revenue generating publications that are you know trying to get some news out, but they're trying to spark a debate. You know, and, and they tend to amplify extremism rather than amplifying that, you know, that's that's not the bell curve. The bell curve is here, right? 
Yeah, it's like when I was young, like when I was, you know, going shop like to the grocery store when I was like eight or ten. On the checkout line, there was like all the junk, the junk publications, right? The nonsense. And so that was like a tiny little fraction. Maybe let's like, let's just do the Pareto thing. That was like 20%. And then you go home and you watch the news and it's kind of boring. And like, they're doing these extensive reports and investigations. And, and that's like the 80%. Seems like we live in the world that's like flipped now. <laughs> yeah. Well, to use your analogy, right? There's, there, there used to be the aisle in the, the store that says, here's where all the magazines and books are, right? And then there's the stuff that's right next to the checkout counter, right? And, and it's the, it is the, can I get some of your money from an impulse buy? Because you wouldn't go in and buy this off the shelf. It's just, it's because it's right there. It's all about placement. And in a lot of ways, the digital landscape that we live in has created the optimum placement, right? Because I can put whatever everywhere. Right. And so then it's, you know, what are people consuming? Right. It, it kind of depends on the impulse click. Ooh, that's good stuff. I want, I want to talk more about, I, I will talk about that stuff forever and get way <laughs> off topic. So I apologize for that. But I want, no the, I know Jobvite does a number of things, the applicant tracking, all sorts. Can you give me like, what's your 10,000 foot overview of Jobvite? Um, I, I think the easiest thing that you can think of, right, is, uh, you know, if you had a factory, right? And, and you're trying to manufacture things. You've got a process. You, you're pulling things through the factory. You want to optimize that process. You want to make it fast, frictionless, and inexpensive. We bring a set of software and services to the hiring process to do exactly that. Trying to find qualified candidates is probably the most expensive part of the whole process. People are posting jobs out on job boards. They're posting through social media. We automate all of that infrastructure as well as try to report on the effectiveness of those placements so that people know the value of where they're spending their money. Are they getting the quality candidates that they need? And then once they're getting them into that pipeline through an apply, how are they doing through the qualification and hiring process, right? It's a complex process. And if you've ever hired somebody, you know, there's a lot that's going on. You imagine if somebody's trying to hire 2,000 people a week, right? You need a different kind of automation and a different kind of scale to support people with those kinds of demands. It's easy to hire one or two people. But if you're doing six a week as a single hiring manager, it's already more complex than what you're going to be happy with using an Excel spreadsheet with. And that's really where the applicant tracking system came in. Uh, we do recruitment marketing to handle the front side is flipping around rather than having you passively come to my job. How do I get to you and show you that my job is there, right? That's really the recruitment marketing piece. We've got excellent technologies and services there to help accelerate that outreach. Social media is what Jobbyte's known for. Right, the job bite is a social media job invite, and and we came through that in the prior recession. Right, when 2008 through 2011 is when we built out a lot of our functionality so that we could grow out of that recession into the hiring phase that came afterwards. Right, and we we're doing something very similar this year as well. We're investing a lot of new features and functions this year. So that as people start hiring and ramping out of this, they're going to be even more effective next year. That's smart. Use the time appropriately. Are you going through like M&A or are you building your own products like 100% in-house? Uh, we've done a lot of M&A over the last two years. You know, it's kind of a job bites moving out of that teenage to young adult phase in the company. So uh, two years ago, we got a majority shareholder. We went out, we bought some companies that were partners and good matches for us in terms of having features and functions that operated at enterprise scale in a way that, you know, it, it was going to take us time to build. But since then, we've been focused on integrating these things and making them work really well together. So our telemetry, Rollpoint, Canvas, and Jobbyte product lines are all now integrated. We have a common login system. You know, we're working on building out the best suite in the industry. 
And, you know, it's going to take us a little while to get to that vision. But the fact that we're investing now while things are slow allows us to to be able to accelerate out of this um, when the with the hiring returns later next year. So uh, in my town, when I was raising capital, there was this other company that was in like the HR space and they were like small startup. I think they had like five, seven people, but they were doing this thing that I thought was pretty fascinating where they were like uh, understanding the psychological profile of the type of team member that you needed next, right? And then they were scanning the internet and building like millions of profiles of potential candidates and then analyzing them mm -hmm. against that and connecting them. Is that something that's like regularly happening in, in your industry or is that something that they were just really just news to you? Um, from a psych profile, probably not highly common. Uh, what most of the industry is focused on right now is really just trying to provide more intelligent screening I, you know, how do I find people that are a better match to this job, right? So that's the, how do I go out and source people to match the job that I want? And then the other part of that is how do I get better at qualifying people, right? Because those are the two things that tend to take a lot of time. You know, we've been investing in things that help the, the, the candidate and the recruiter communicate. Uh, so, you know, moving from an, an email-based messaging system to a text-based messaging system, bringing advanced chatbot technology into the product so that some of the easy questions can be offloaded and really focusing on how do we maximize the recruiter's time in terms of generating successful outcome for the company, right? It's not always a successful outcome for the candidate. Uh, recruiting's not like sales, right? We're not trying to drive as many candidates to the success goal. It's you're trying to drive the best candidates to the success goal without giving the other candidates a bad experience. Because if you have a secondary position, you want to take your silver medalist from your first job and try to reroute them potentially, right? And so focusing on candidate experience in a process that's generally really negative because, you know, let's face it, most people are rejected from most job applications. It's it, it's kind of the nature of the industry. But it's certainly better to get a nice rejection and, you know, some feedback than, you know, your application going into a black hole and you never hear from the company again. I know. I hear so many people, that's like what they, that's that's usually the first spot when they're figuring out like how to find a job. They're like, I'm applying to 80 different places and no one's responding. That's something I hear all the time. And I'm always like, go put a sign up and make some money. Like be an entrepreneur. <laughs> no, I, I, I realize that like, that's just the way I think, but um, it's important for people to understand that like, you know, relationships are so important. Like building up an, a network before you need it is what you have. To, it's like savings before you need it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And, and, and that's part of why, you know, job by pivoted into the social media broadcast mechanism very early uh, is because we saw that the power of your network was first off your network is full of people that you like right they're people that you have or do like to work with and they generally produce the best hires long term so why would i go waste my time you know posting my job to a public job board where anybody can come and apply in it and i have to throw away 90 percent of the applies if i can get some sourcing from a network of trusted people first, right? And so now what you see, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of focus on building trust networks a priori so that when you're searching for a job, you, you don't have to go through the finding and qualifying these candidates. They're already pre-qualified. And, and you can think of, you know, a lot of the hiring agency type use cases are, well, they'll go find it and qualify candidates for you so that it can shorten your cycle time on getting your position filled. Yeah, which is important because we learned that and we put job postings out. We have about 10 people here at the podcast, but it's, uh, you know, we're hiring a person like every other month now or so. And mm -hmm. the 80, 80, 90% of the stuff we get, I've just like, I don't see why this person is applying. Like they don't have any interest in this in their life. And, and then I remember back to like the earlier days when you're, you're trying to like figure out what you're what you're doing and like who you are and 
kind of exploring mm-hmm. like a child, right? Like walking around the house, playing with everything. <laughs> and I, then, I, then I relax a little bit, you know? Yeah. And, and, and I'll say that, you know, there, there, there are people who like to do more of the same, right? And so they'll bring their expertise to the job. And then there are people like me who I am pivoted out of, you know, aerospace engineering into computer science full time. When I came across, it's like, yeah, but you've got an aerospace degree. And I'm like, yeah, I know that. But, you know, I'm, I really enjoy programming. And here are some examples of the programs that I've written, you know, and, and, and it made that transition really easy, but only after I had an opportunity to have the conversation. You should have been like, yeah, I'm really great at launching products or projects, <laughs> right? Like you should have thrown in some wordplay with the aeronautics. Uh, yeah. 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 Or the astronomy. Be like, yeah, the stars are aligning. That's why we're here hey, today. If yeah. you're looking for a rocket scientist, I'm your guy. That's awesome. You are so cool, Ron. This is fantastic. Uh, I'm so I'm gonna thank Leron. Like uh, I'm gonna be like, dude, thank you so much for introducing us because that's how we got connected through Rookout. How did you end up like meeting them? Um, we we actually met the Rookout team uh, because uh, we have a relationship uh, with uh, uh, Cisco App Dynamics. Uh, we've been an AppDynamics customer since 2013. And one of the things that I like about JobVite is that we don't treat vendors as vendors. We treat vendors as partners. And we build these really deep partnerships with them so that we're cross-collaborating, you know, sharing feedback, pre-evaluating new features and functions. Um, and, and when you do that over a period of years, it, it builds a relationship where they're saying, hey, you know, we've got something new and we want you to take a look at it. You know, we were one of the first companies that got to see what Rookout could do. And it was an amazing and immediate uh, win for me. I mean, to me, it's like it, it took me about 30 seconds to think through everything this was going to do for us. And I'm like, how does this not sell itself? Right. Because essentially you're you're looking at a tool that allows you to do production time debugging without stopping production time traffic, right? So it works just the same as a debugger would on a local development environment, except it doesn't break the the thread. And it, it's just, it's beautiful. It's elegant. It's simple. And, you know, we, we pulled it into our infrastructure almost immediately. It's been uh, a, a, a huge time saver for my team. Yeah, I was talking with Jason, CTO over at GitHub about it. And then right before, like five minutes before the show was going to start, I, I quickly realized that the CEO of GitHub was actually invested in Rookout. And I was like, oh, wow. So they de- he, Jason's going to know who Rookout is. Uh, and he definitely did. It was it was such a cool like moment. And then I thought at that point, I was like, this is, man, that company is going to just take off and explode. Then I met I met Leron. He was such a cool guy. And then they had I as an engineer when I saw first saw their product, I was like, this is so this is so neat. And because yeah. you know you just think about all the, you know, I I'd say two weeks before I found their product, I was having a conversation at a conference about uh, anonymizing production data down for development, right? And I was like, oh, this is so neat. I can't I, sh- I can't wait for that conference to come back next year. I'll go talk to those people about this again uh, because I yeah. should check out Rookout, you know? Yeah, and, and, and that was one of the things of, you know, part of the, the benefit of being early is we had an opportunity to provide a lot of feedback to the team and, and they were amazing partners in listening to that feedback. So we were able to show them a path that, that worked better for us and and they were able to incorporate that in the product. But you you think about some of the bigger things like zero trust. I want to have a zero trust posture around my production systems. So how do I get engineering the data they need to reproduce an issue when it's happening in production and I've locked them out, right? Workout is your your saving grace, right? Because they can go in and they can get the data they need without ever being exposed to the data they shouldn't have, right? And it's without having any access to any of the production infrastructure or databases. It's just literally in the scope of this code, here are the variables that are in scope. And these ones are redacted. So, you know, you, you, you can't have these, so you won't get them. It's just elegant and beautiful again. When you have to when you have to sell an expense like that to the team or budget for that, and and you have to 
kind of like figure out how to think about it in the context of a PL. Did you go for like security cost reduction or did you go for efficiency and time of engineering? Like where did you, how did you quantify this as an investment? Uh, for for us, the it was really around uh, customer outcome. You know, we have SLAs on turning around customer issues as they're brought in and we would like to make our SLEs tighter. We, we want to be the best service provider in the industry. And, and in order to do that, I've got to take a process that takes hours or days and shrink it into minutes. Uh, and, and Workout gave us that ability. So it was an easy win because I've got support from our senior, senior leadership on that kind of a priority item. You know, the, 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 there are other reasons to do it as well as it's a more efficient use of our engineer's time. Ergo, they can deliver more meaningful product as well. But the primary purpose was to shorten the customer uh, impact time. You know, it, from a DevOps or a, a Dora perspective, it's the mean time to resolution, right? By reducing that by 80% has some meaningful outcome on customer goodwill and uh, retention. So it, it, it's generally pretty in, pretty well an easier sell, but there are other things you can do with it. It's like, I can run it in my CI environment and I can get information upstream in the cycle if I'm running a shift left program. I could run right out locally and then I don't even have to worry about whether or not, uh, you know, I can get my IDE to connect to my running process in Kubernetes. Who cares? Right. Now, how did you have, you have like a hundred plus engineers there, like my guesstimates um, yep. off of that LinkedIn data. Right. And we, I don't know how accurate that is, but um, how do you, how do you go about like selling this or deploying this type of product throughout your engineering teams? Like how, how did you do that? <laughs> Uh, it was interesting too, right? Uh, so we, we deployed it for a proof of concept and we showed it to a couple of people. Uh, and, and at the time, uh, we didn't have single sign-on. So we were having to provision accounts for specific users. And, and what was interesting is to see the backup in the access requests is engineers were hearing word of mouth from other engineers who had access about this they wanted it too and they you know because we didn't have sso they had to ask for an account and just watching it kind of you know almost double every day is like two four six eight you know pretty soon we you know the whole team was going when can i have access for us there that there there's a technical limitation for us as well is this rookout is an agent that runs in your uh, primary language so you know it was very easy for us to adopt the Java agent. There's a C-sharp agent, and now we're prototyping a Ruby agent. A big part of our infrastructure is Ruby, and there's no agent. So it's like, although we wanted the capability, it wasn't there. And again, you know, that's where the Rookout team really heard our urgency around Ruby, and they prioritized um, getting the agent developed and ready for us to preview. Nice. I'm a fan. Ruby's the language that I program in most recently. So yeah, about seven, seven or eight years of Ruby. It's a, it, once I started using it, it was like just such a, it was a beautiful language to use. And then it had, of course, like the rails framework and all of that. And so that was really useful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's nice when you have, you know, those good uh, archetypes built into the framework so that you don't have to keep reinventing the same solutions mechanically. You know, we use a lot of Java Spring and we use some um, uh, Ruby Rails. We also have a lot of um, Python that we use for either serverless or, you know, small use cases. But, you know, for us, the big transition now is moving from, you know, EC2 hosting into the containerized versions or going fully serverless for some other items. Yeah, I remember when I first found out like frameworks were a thing because when I started, I, I... I didn't really know that you, they had all of these collections of tools that you could use. I was kind of just writing my own stuff and I was like, oh, I'm so cool. I've got this like really amazing asset. I reuse it on multiple projects. And then I came across my buddy Derek's like, hey, let's uh, check out like Code Ignite or some framework like that. And I was like, this is um, unbelievable. And then I just found Ruby and a couple other ones and cake php all these different frameworks and i i just was like this is it just it took it you would need a team of 20 people to do it and now you could do it with one person in an afternoon build a basic app yeah 
it, it's it's amazing how many great frameworks are out there. And I mean, part of the the challenge is there's a maybe too many, you know. And and I don't want to be heretical there, but you know, having some really really good frameworks is better than having a lot of okay frameworks, right? And and to me, you know, it, it continues to baffle me that. Yes, there's these great frameworks for writing applications, but there's no great frameworks for writing business applications, right? There's another level above it says, here are all the layers of business requirements that sit on top of, you know, computer science coolness, right? It's like, these are the kinds of things business users need, regardless of whether you're doing a payroll system or whether you're doing an ATS or whether you're doing, you know, a ticket master, right? There's this set of business requirements that I have not seen change in the last 25 years, and there's no frameworks to deal with that, right? It's, people are providing language or they're providing technology, but very few people are, are really addressing that business solution layer. You know, obviously, you can build things in force.com to do that, or you know, but that's not really portable. And so... You know, people have to big, you know, pick and choose very carefully. If I'm going to go that route, then I'm stuck in that ecosystem. If I want to do something different, then I'm kind of on my own, right? So, you know, there there are definitely ways to get it done, but it just to me it seems like you know there are thousands of companies that are resolving the same problem over and over again. First name, last name, first name and last name, last name comma first name, right? It's like. Oh yeah, it's amazing the amount of duplication that I created an analogy to somebody in like the leadership development world where what I saw happening with companies like trying to recreate WordPress versus just using WordPress and it's just like you don't need to recreate it, you don't need to spend all that engineering power, just use something that already exists to manage your content, right? And then it's open, so then start customizing it. Uh versus um you know, them like creating these leadership development programs like from scratch constantly. And so I was like, oh man, this is amazing. It's the same mistake I see over here, but it's happening in this world over here because they didn't make this mistake. And engineers have since like grown and learned this mistake, but this part of the industry over here and this market has not. And it, it's, uh, it's like, oh, is this what experience feels like? Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, that's exactly the case. And, and if you think about it, Think about that same kind of mentality applied toward hosting infrastructure, right? You know, we started with on-prem and you would go buy network gear and lease power and high back and you'd get a rack and you'd rack servers and you'd build a drive and you'd network it together and you'd apply firmware and then you could start deploying stuff, right? Right. And that's really where, you know, the cloud comes in and it, it's it's that framework for hosting that takes a lot of that away. But the the mistake I see is people go into services like AWS and they provision the network and they provision the storage and they build hosts and they get it all set up and then they can deploy. You know, it's like you're you're just repeating the same set of mistakes because you're un, you're unwilling to engage fully with what the cloud can offer. Right. It's like I just want my method to run. Why am I not using Lambda? Right. Why, why do I need an EC2 host to run this? You know, it, it's that data center in the cloud versus actually building a cloud application. So your team must be pretty excited to work at Jobbyte must be pretty advanced then with you've got such a long history of experience as a chief architect. I always try to figure out like where's where's the area that this person you know, where are they going to really shine and have a lot of experience? And I just saw throughout your history, you've, you're like Mr. Chief Architect. I, I've earned it, you know, I, I, I would say is, you know, I choose difficult situations, right? I, I've, I'm not interested in joining a startup that's, you know, pie in the sky and clean slate. I usually join, you know, round A, round B companies that, you know, They've had some initial success, but they're running into some scaling challenges because that's what I find is it, it's that crunchiness of how do you make this scale on a budget that I find really interesting and challenging. And having done that a couple of times, you know, Jobite's in a really good spot. And now we're able to accelerate because we've got control over that. We have a very competent cloud hosting team. And 
we're moving that skill set out into our application development teams so they can own their own delivery cycles. You know, that's the ultimate goal of, you know, what we ostensibly call DevOps. But what we've been finding is that DevOps is actually too small. And so people start talking about DevSecOps because obviously I need it to be secure. Um, and, and that's interesting also, but it's kind of the wrong order because the security requirements should come first, right? And then the other observation that we've made is there's a stakeholder that's not at the table that needs to be, especially in SaaS, and that's finance. It's like when you're talking about, hey, I'm going to go deploy this new feature, it's kind of like, well, what's the budget for that and who's paying for it? And how are you going to get that budget in so that finance knows that spend is coming in February, right? So that you can help them manage cash flow, right? So what we're actually um, kind of prototyping is something I call FinSec DevOps, right? Get the finance and security requirements first and then do the DevOps work. Is So is that like an internal process that the way you have things structured at JobVite? Uh, it, it is the, it's, it's the methodology that we follow, right? Is, you know, where's the budget? What are the security requirements? What are the feature requirements? Go build, you know, what are the operational requirements? Go build it and operate it. And, and as we move forward, the application teams that build the software are going to be responsible for operating the software, right? There's no motion of that to some other team. There's no SRE team. There's no operations team. It's you are responsible for everything you deploy. And so if, if you deploy something poorly, that's going to interfere with your next sprint of planned work because you're going to have to respond to that. Right. In, in, in having engendering that level of accountability and ownership, I think over time will help the teams deliver superior products. Because, you know, the, the bigger problem that people have is a lot of the teams that write code don't know how code actually runs and operates at scale. They just write code. And so they keep making the same mistake over and over that some other team has to try and fix. And then you get into this communication uh, flame war, right? This is what DevOps was intended to fix, but it only works if you actually follow it all the way through and say, no, this this your infrastructure. Your team is responsible for the spend as well, right? Not just the availability, not just the meantime to acknowledge, not just the meantime to respond, you know, resolve, but you're also accountable for the spend. So if if you double your costs, the business is going to come back to you and say, why is this happening? Is it because of usage? And how did you think somebody was going to pay for that if it's not built, right? You, the, the goal here is to make a functional business that can scale. Yeah, and I like that you mentioned ownership because that's like step one. You have to have a team that'll, that has that culture of ownership in order to grow something really Correct. big and scale it. Yeah. Yeah, and, and interestingly enough, right, ownership comes through, uh, you know, vulnerability and transparency, right? And and those two lessons are hard lessons for teams to learn, especially, you know, depending on where people came up through their career, you know, being transparent and being vulnerable isn't easy. Um, but you can't really get to accountability and ownership without passing through that filter first. And, uh, you know, trying to do that with 13 scrum teams, you know, is a little bit challenging. Some teams get it faster than other teams do. But, you know, as an overarching organization, we need to continue to keep pacing forward. So so what makes, with all your experience as, a, as an architect, what makes a good chief architect? Oh, boy, that is probably the hardest question anybody's ever asked me. Um, you have to be willing to listen and you have to know how to share experience without overwhelming the conversation. The, the key is to try and show people the path that you see when they're still looking at their feet and you're, you know, maybe up at the peak and you're looking across to the next valley. You're trying to communicate to them not only where you've already been, that they're still progressing, but where they're going to go next, right? And, and, and sometimes that gulf in experience is very difficult to bridge. Uh, and so you have to have a tremendous amount of patience of understanding where people are and helping them see that there's a, a path 
and then trying to work to accelerate their path so it doesn't take them 10 years to do the same transition, right? You know, the business doesn't have time for people to to learn everything the hard way. And so you have to build a, an open culture where people are unafraid to ask questions, but also not afraid to experiment and fail. Um, it's one of the things that, you know, I think significantly differentiates companies like SpaceX from NASA is that that risk versus risk adverse behavior, right? SpaceX can because the shareholders are the only ones that care if they fail, right? If NASA fails, then go, Congress could cut their budgets, right? So th there's just an in institutional resistance to, you know, risk, but, you know, you have to take risks in order to learn, you know, the, the lessons that we learn without failure are probably the least important lessons we can learn in life. Yes, a hundred percent. The the lessons that cause me the most pain are the ones that I remember for the longest. They're the ones that just you don't forget those, and they become the the most important lessons of your life in hindsight. That's frequently the case. Yeah, um, you know, to to continue on that thread, I would say you know. In a highly evolving technical world, one of the challenges that I have had in the past is just maintaining an awareness of where the state of the art is. You know, I think we're we're really good right now, but you know, maybe you know, eight nine years ago, I was so focused on the problem that the company was trying to solve at my prior employer that I was losing sight of what was going on outside of me, outside of the industry. Right. And part of what I'm working on for my personal improvement is doing things like this, where it's like I have to be more engaged with what's going on outside of the company in order to really take what I can do inside the company to the next level. Right? You have to be out and collaborating, um, not just consuming passively, but you also have to be out and sharing. Yeah. So when when we have a lot of companies that are in in the growth stage right they're maybe let's say they've got 25 engineers or so i mean between like five and 25 engineers and they're growing and growing and they're excited at what point like what's the what's the flag or the thing that would like tickle their spidey sense that would let them know they need a chief architect versus just kind of figuring things out um it, it really comes when you start realizing, you know, it kind of depends on how you started, right? Uh, Jawbyte started with a monolithic application server design. It, it, it's great for prototyping, uh, very 2005, you know, that's kind of the way things were being done then. But by 2008, it was already showing some challenges in scale, right? Uh, you, you can only vertically scale so, so large, especially if you're on-prem, you know, imagine, Oh, I need more memory in my server, but my server's maxed out. So now I need to go buy a new server and wait for it to get shipped so that I can install memory and then I can move the software, right? It, it, it's very difficult, right? Companies that are born in the cloud generally are going to be more nimble and more safe from some of this, especially if they've made good choices on their design patterns for the cloud. Companies that started on-prem or started in the cloud with data center in the cloud as a mentality, it really starts getting into scale. You know, you're going to start seeing complexity or scale dominate the discussion. And at those points, you, you need some leadership that says, okay, I've seen this, I've done this before, here are our options, right? Let's collaborate with the team and let's decide what we're gonna do. Are we gonna refactor this monolith into microservices? Are we gonna host it? on Kubernetes? Or are we going to pivot into serverless? Uh, what are we doing about databases? What are we doing about search, right? Uh, what are we doing about cache, right? Those are the things that obviously contribute to a system's performance as it scales. But then you also get into that. You, you can throw money at a lot of these problems, but at some point it's like, you know, when the money starts, when the money curve starts to flatten, right? They always do. Right, it, it accelerates up and then it, it kind of inflects and it flattens again. 
as the money starts curve starts to flatten and your costs are going up that's when you need this other perspective to come in and say how am i going to pay for this profitably maybe i need a different design that utilizes cheaper storage or cheaper compute right and and that's kind of the driver that that we're focusing on right now is we we can manage the deployment cycle and provision new services very easily how do we do it cost effectively and how do we do it cost effectively based on people time as well as compute time and um, you know some of our mantras is you know we we prefer services over servers right if we can find an aws service that does the same thing uh, we will always choose that over running the service ourselves right whether that's a database or search engine or a streaming event queue there are you you have to recognize where the expertise lies and then just say this is either a core competency or it's not yeah because they're they have people just eating breathing and sleeping that specific service and keeping it up all day right yep so they leverage yep. that so what are some of the like interesting difficult engineering problems that are specific to the recruitment industry if there are any um well there there are two and I, i'm sure my chief data scientist is going to kick me nate later um <laughs> So I, I read an interesting statistic the other day that said that 78% of people lie on their resumes. But if you're using their resumes to do the job matching, then how effective is the job matching going to be, right? So you, you have this challenge in recruiting that you've got humans on both sides, right? You've got a job description that is marketing speak for the job, but it's not probably really what the job is when you get it. Right? right and then on the other side you've got somebody who's marketing speak for themselves and their skills but it's probably not really what the person is when you get them on board right so you're trying to match these two flowery descriptions of what's real but on the back end side you've got to deal with the the reality of it right and and, and so you know for us it's like how do we build a more accurate predictor of compatibility based on the fact that we're ingesting these pieces of information that may or may not be accurate, right? Uh, and I think we came up with a really amazing way to say, well, I can tell how much fuzz is in this resume because the things that they're listing in the keywords are unrelated, right? Hmm. So versus, having a strong correlation. Yes, somebody who was a chief data scientist would know R and databases and this, but they probably don't know React, right? Which is a front-end technology. So you know, having a, a model that can tease out these things are true and those things are unlikely to be true allows us to then uh, exclude those kinds of things from primary match. And, and we think it gives us a better match than a lot of the, the, you know, kind of brute force approaches that are being taken in the industry. That's interesting. Now, do you like pick certain cases or do you have like teams that like follow through with some of these to actually figure out if these assumptions, like how valid they are, or like how do you how do you improve it and and follow like when you have this assumption about like they might not this thing's unlikely to be true, right? How yeah. do you better understand that through real world experience? Um, so part of that is to you know build an engagement in the product that allows the recruiters who are evaluating these candidates to say, yeah, I agreed with that. No, I didn't agree with that. Right to to start layering in their own preferences or biases. But one of the nice things about being Jobbyte is we use our own product to do our own hiring, right? And so we can see it in action and it's kind of like, huh, why is it that that guy didn't get a good score even though he's the one we picked to hire? Let's go dig in and figure that out. You know, so we've got real world experience with doing it. But we also have features in the product that allow the, the customers to tune the results to their needs. And while I'm on the topic of biases, you know, this year was a big social justice year for awareness. And you know, Jobbytes working on some diversity inclusion 
capabilities and features as well that we can use with the same sets of data, right? Is this job description biased against certain people just in the way it's phrased, right? Is, is a, I, I think, a, a, a useful feature to help hiring managers be more aware of their own biases, hiring managers or HR, whoever's authoring the job description can be more aware of the, the verbiage that they're using and, and whether it's going to automatically self-exclude people. That's interesting. So I, I didn't know about this. So people writing job descriptions, you can have bias in the job description. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Hey, I'm looking for a rock star. That's not always what people are looking for, and that the affinity for ninja, right? Some of these terms are are automatically uh, exclusive based on gender or based on regional identity, uh, and and so you know, making people more aware of their subconscious or you know even conscious biases, I think, is a good thing. You know, they can still choose to say, "Nope, this is what I want," because. I'm looking for a rock star. Okay, but you're automatically excluding these populations. But what what are they? Because I thought a rock star, I thought people, when they use that, they just mean you're going to work really hard. Well, that's the thing is like, it means different things to different people, right? And, and while I don't have, you know, specific, you know, population data to share with you, it's that there are terms that you can use even in normal writing that are exclusatory to females, that are exclusatory to people of color, right? It's very subtle, right? And, and one of the things that, uh, you know, we have to recognize as, you know, people with Caucasian backgrounds, it's, you know, we have privilege. And that means that the bias is invisible to us in some cases. Uh, and, and that's the beauty of having this data system there is to show people that it's there. Uh, you, you can see it, because there's data to back it up. Now that there's data that's back it up and you're aware of it, what do you want to do about it, right? What, one of the things that we've been trying to highlight was, you know, you can't make change using AI by training it with historical data. Because if you're using historical data where the bias was present, it's just going to do more of it, right? So you have to be aware of what bias is in your training data so that you can change the model so that it's, you know, not biased, or at least the, the biases are overt and you're aware of them. With like, I, I think one of the interesting things I had heard was there was like some sort of hand gesture or something that in America was like normal, but in another country was like incredibly rude. Right. And so it's interesting as, because this technology is spanning the globe, it's spanning all of humanity. So I, I'm, I'm fascinated by this concept, like specifically with words and their meaning or gestures and their meaning it's like who who's gonna be like the world police like the database or register for like micro grievances or whatever they may be called like how do you how do you do that on a large scale or is it just something that just kind of happens in these communities and it just is going to figure itself out long that's probably it. I, yeah yeah I, you know globalization is, is a hard problem right you know you, you can say well okay we globalized our product you know it's available in 30 languages it we we can show dates in this format and that format we can show you know numbers with the commas here and the periods there but that's not really what globalization is about, right? The globalization is about understanding that there are people that grew up with different experiences than you. And if you're going to communicate to each other, you have to be able to, uh, to speak each other's language. Most of the things that we think of as globalization in the product is really product to consumer, meaning I grew up in the United States. I'm expecting to see numbers like this. I'm expecting to see times like this. And I read English. And somebody else is, you know, growing up in France and they learn French and they see numbers this way and they see dates that way. The product is solving that problem right now. But there are very few products that are actually solving this problem is I want to talk to you and I speak English and you speak French, right? Google translates there. But nobody's using it really to say, hey, actually, I want to foster communication back and forth so that you can talk to each other across languages, customs, and cultural norms, right? And, and that's kind of where 
you know, we start getting into the cultural norms around gestures or, uh, you know, word usage is, is something that if you're unaware of it, you're unaware of it. You're going to unintentionally offend. And, and there's a social awkwardness to that, obviously. You know, we, we all hear about the, you know, foreign traveler visiting in a city. You know, it doesn't matter where you're going. It's just they, they stand out in the crowd because they're the only ones work that are not functioning correctly in, in, in the social norm there. And the question is, in a global environment where we're working across these environments, how do you not be the traveler, right? How do you, how do you automatically fit in with your people? And it it's really takes a lot of relationship building. Yeah, no, it's definitely like a whole, I love to see how technology is growing and emerging. And I think it's fascinating, all these little things that are coming up, like whether it's in our products or our culture, because what it's doing is it's creating some really interesting and unique discussions, right? And, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. What's what's interesting though is if you go and you look at a city, you know, any large metropolitan area, you'll see it's very similar, right? There, there's you know villages and neighborhoods that have a culture to them that you know you're native, you, you know you, you belong there, right? And and if you go into a different neighborhood, it has a different flavor, or um, and you know, the shops that are there, the people that are on the street are wearing different clothes, right? That kind of diversity is something that, you know, we should all recognize as normal and, and something to be cherished because, you know, it allows us to have these differences, but yet we have this layer of cooperation that allows us to get along as well, right? The global stage is just the next layer. It's almost like recursive, right? It's like, you can have a household to two households to a neighborhood to a you know a city to a state to a country to the planet to the solar system you know it's going to be fascinating for me to kind of you know envision and, and watch as we start thinking about yeah we're going to colonize mars okay well how is mars's government going to work and and how does the economy work and and what is the legal tax situation on Mars? Is it going to be the new Caribbean? You know, because there are no laws in space. So it, it's kind of a, it, it opens us up to a brand new line of thinking about how we as humans collaborate with each other um, in, in a way that's not mutually destructive. You're You're like a rocket scientist, man. I am a rocket scientist. This is great. Uh, one last question as we wrap up. What are you learning like right now as a leader? As a leader? One of the things I'm learning as a leader is how to transition from doing things to motivating people to do things. In order for a leader to scale, you have to be able to have the ability to delegate and the ability for your delegates to enact your will. Um, without a lot of oversight and without a lot of, you know, direct involvement. And sometimes that's easier than others. So really, you know, we've been talking about, you know, developing management skills within Jobbyte recently. You know, it's like having courses for people managers to help them understand how to build relationships and how to, you know, understand where employees are you know, work through things that are challenging, uh, in, in, you know, create enthusiasm for what the company's doing. And one of the areas that we've been trying to work on most recently is trying to identify and nurture leadership, right? Because leadership isn't about having people to that you can tell to go do something. Leadership's about being able to inspire people to go do things on their own and, and say, I want to go there can you manage this, All right? And then I can just not think about that anymore. I can go work on something else. And I know that that work's gonna get done. And then just kind of lightly touch base on how's it going? What are the resources that you need, right? It's really about being the, the servant leader that we talk about in Agile is really you know there to facilitate the scale of the organization. And, Sometimes it works really well, and sometimes it's really challenging. And I love that challenge. It's it's keeping it fresh for me to be learning new skills. And 
working through the, you know, you should always try to survive a mistake that you make because that's the only way you can learn from it. So it's kind of like, okay, what mistakes can I make and what mistakes would I not survive and try to avoid those and yet keep pushing the boundaries since, you know, having the imagination to try things that other people think are not possible or not worthwhile is a key part of it as well. It's like, it, it, there is a reason to do something. And if you can find the business justification to do it, it, it should, it should get done. And uh, trying to create that same sense of enthusiasm and motivation across an organization of a hundred can be challenging at times because people don't get it, right? They just, I, I just come in, I want to write my code. You know, it's like, yeah, but what your code is doing is actually changing other people's lives, right? <laughs> it matters. Uh, and, and so, you know, doing this code this way instead of that way makes a difference to the company and it makes a difference to the customer. Thank you so much for listening. And if you found this episode useful, please share it with a friend or a colleague who you think would get value from it. And if you have topics that you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, either add me on LinkedIn or send me an email, joel at moderncto.io. Every time I get an email or LinkedIn message, it absolutely makes my day and inspires me to keep going.